uh, about Jonah, but probably I would say uh, you might be less likely to have heard lessons about Nahum. Uh, Nahum is a sequel that we kind of don't really get much attention to. Uh, Both of them are preaching about Nineveh, about this uh, world empire, this Assyrian empire. So if you've seen those slides, it's uh, a summer in uh, Assyria is what I called this, since we're going to be spending this month looking at at these two books. And since we're in Jonah on Sunday morning, I thought it would be useful for us to look at Nahum uh, in the evenings, not only in connection to the same uh, object of prophecy and talking about Nineveh and this Assyrian Empire, but uh, the messages of Nahum, I think, are just uh, staggeringly powerful, and it, it's somewhat shameful that we often don't know a whole lot about this book. This first chapter is going to ask us a question and ultimately answer, well, who then is the Lord? And before we get into the lesson, I would like for you to take a minute And if we were asked, who is the Lord? I want you to think about what are maybe some of the top two to four characteristics that come to your mind. Because Nahum is going to give a prophecy in which he's going to state four different characteristics about God. And in doing so, in in describing these, it is supposed to be a hope and an encouragement to to the people of God. Uh, If you weren't here this morning, I'll put the map back on the screen that you can see that we're dealing with this powerful, cruel, wicked, uh, terrifying nation of Assyria who's conquered much of the the landscape at that time. And as Nahum preaches, there are some unique aspects about him. He's prophesying around 150 years after Jonah speaks. We're, we're a little bit more able to narrow in when Nahum preaches. We're not exactly sure when uh, Jonah preaches, but there seems to be probably about a 150-year gap that Nahum comes along and prophesies. But though they both are preaching about Nineveh, there is a major distinction. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach to them. God comes to Nahum and doesn't tell him to go and preach to Nineveh. Rather, he is preaching to Judah about Nineveh. He is going to tell them about what is going to happen to the Assyrians and to Nineveh. And that's a really important context to keep in mind. To be thinking about in these three chapters, this book didn't go to Nineveh and they all read this and went, oh, I can't believe this is going to happen. This was preached to Judah. This was preached to the people of God about Nineveh. So why is God telling Judah about Nineveh? Why tell them about these judgments? And as we look at this, it's going to help us see that God is describing some important characteristics about who he is. Before we can look at those four characteristics in the first chapter, however, I want you to notice the introduction in verse 1. Sometimes we can go over these introductions that are given here as the word of the Lord is is given here, the book of the vision of Nahum the Eclashite as he receives this oracle concerning Nineveh. But the Hebrew of these two words, I think, is particularly fascinating and sets the tone very well for what this book is going to be about. You have on one hand that Nahum's name means compassion or comfort. 
And so you might be going, all right, this is going to be a, a comforting message. And it is. He is going to come to Judah and give them comforting words. However, it says that he is from Echosh, which is particularly interesting because that town name means God is severe. And when you read that, you kind of go, okay, so this is the message about the comfort of God's severity. And this book is that. And I hope that you kind of feel a tension of, well, how can the severity of God provide comfort? That doesn't seem to match. It's one or the other, right? Isn't God severe or God is comforting? And that's what makes this book really amazing is God is going to show how his severity and righteousness is actually a comfort to his people. Notice verse 2. Let's start with the first characteristic that is given. Nahum chapter 1 and in verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Very first picture that is given about God. God is jealous and he is avenging. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. He keeps wrath for his enemies. This is a powerful start to describe who God is. And I would probably take a stab and say when I asked you to think of some characteristics about who God is. First one might not have been jealous and avenging. That's probably not exactly where we went to right out of the gate. But this message starts with, here's who the Lord is. He is jealous and he is avenging. And I want to settle on this characteristic for a minute. Because if you pay much attention to what atheists and unbelievers will say about God, a lot of them will say, this is their problem with God. How can God be a jealous God? And how can he be this avenging, wrathful God? I can't accept a God who is jealous and wrathful and avenging. That doesn't work for me. That can't be right. And I want you to notice, first of all, that's what God says he is. That is not a misunderstanding. Oh, no, you know, he's really not wrathful or avenging or jealous. Yes, he is. He says it quite plainly. Very first words of this prophecy. He is jealous and he is avenging. But I want to make an important point here, which is this. If the Lord is not jealous and if he is not avenging, then he is not anything. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Everyone wants the Lord to deeply love them. I mean, if you even in just in generic world today, do you want God to love you? Oh, yes. Everybody wants that. Everybody wants that kind of characteristic out of God. Everybody's happy with a God who is full of love. But I want you to think about what is at stake in, in understanding that God having a passionate, deep love means that he must be jealous. And let me put it this way. If you truly love, let's say, a family member and somebody is doing something to harm them in a horrible way, you are going to feel jealousy and want some kind of justice to be done for the wrongdoer who is doing something against the person you love. 
Or to put it another way, if you know of a person being harmed and hurt and you don't care, do you love them? Now, that's why on the news we can kind of listen to all these horrible things that kind of go on in the world. And we're kind of like, well, it wasn't somebody that I knew. So we kind of are okay. But if it's somebody that you truly love, then something has to happen. And that's the essence of what God has to try to explain to us. Is that a true deep love for his people then demands that there is a jealousy. If you are not jealous... For the love and the well-being of someone, then you don't truly love them. Because that's immediately we are concerned for them because of something happening to them. And therefore, if God's love is real, then he must act. And that's why this prophecy starts the way that it is. God is jealous for his people. And he then is required to act with vengeance because he loves them. He loves his people so deeply that he has to act on their behalf. He acts out of his jealousy for his people and therefore has wrath and vengeance on the enemies and on those who are doing harm. Therefore, I will go back to the start of that. If the Lord is not jealous and avenging, he is nothing at all. If he truly loves his people, then he must act upon them. He must do something about that. And that's the beauty of how Nahum begins this. The Assyrian Empire is a wicked, cruel nation who is oppressing the people of God. And God's very first words are, I'm jealous and avenging. And I store up wrath for my enemies. I'm going to do something about your condition because I love you. And so it's an important characteristic, and that's why you see the Apostle Paul say this in Romans chapter in chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Why is vengeance belong to God, and why will he repay? Because he's just, you know, this really angry God who wants to barbecue people? That's not what the point The point is you can leave vengeance to God because his love is so deep for you that he must act on your behalf. Therefore, he can proclaim vengeance is mine. I will repay. I am going to do something about the wrongs, the evils, the hurts, the suffering that's been caused against my people. God must act. And so that's the first picture that is given. God must punish evildoers. We live in a time where, no, no, God's not going to punish anybody. Then you don't have love. He doesn't love his people if he doesn't act for his people. And if he does not punish evil, then he is nothing at all. He must act. And so this is the first picture that is given to us, that this is the God that we serve. And I hope that this would be a useful answer to you when somebody asks, how could God punish people? Or how can God send people to eternal punishment? And here's your answer. If he doesn't, he doesn't love. If he doesn't, then he doesn't love. The two must stand together. If he loves, then he must act for them. And his acting for them is in wrath and judgment and avenging Because he's a jealous heart 
for his people. But notice now verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. This is particularly interesting to think about as verse 2 comes in strong, jealous, avenging, and taking wrath on the enemies. And then the very next line tells us, now hold on, don't forget The Lord is slow to anger. This is the very first characteristic when God describes himself, when he is coming to meet his people, Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, and God expresses who he is, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, which tells us something important and very significant. That means that when God acts in judgment or wrath, It's been a long time coming. When God finally acts in judgment, then it must have been a long time coming. Because the Lord does not act irrationally. His wrath is not just flying off the handle. It is just not sudden and, oh, we caught him on a bad day. It is thoughtful. It is necessary. He does not act in such a way like we would think about humans and their wrath and, oh, we just, you know, got the, got the bad side of him today. He is slow to anger. And you think about what that means then. Before God ever brings judgment, there has always been an opportunity for repentance. Because he is slow to anger, there is then always opportunity for attorney. And that's where Nahum sits in the scope of the scriptures. Jonah is supposed to go proclaim a message to the people. Nahum comes 150 years later and his message is, time's up. You had your chance. You were given your opportunity. You had your chance to turn. And now it is time for judgment. And so God gives this picture. He is slow to anger, but he is great in power. And notice the middle of verse 3. And he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And I hope that that is a truth you can hold on to. When you experience things that are unjust and unfair, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God's love demands justice. God's love is patient and long-suffering. He is slow to anger, but eventually there must be justice. And when judgment comes, this tells us, I think, something very important about God. When judgment comes, that tells us that there is no more that can be done to bring these people back. No more can be done. Every effort has been exhausted to be able to save and redeem those people. Now notice how this rest of this paragraph visualizes this power and majesty of God on display. Look at the middle of verse 3. His way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet i hope you will hold that visual in your mind that is a staggering visual to think about looking up into the sky and seeing the clouds and god says that's just me walking by that's how majestic i am 
That's how powerful I am, is that the clouds are the dust of my feet and that my path and my way is in the storm and in the whirlwind. There is nothing that can hold back my glory or my power, even in the storm. I am there. And then listen to the words of verse four. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Just to hear the visual as, as he walks, the clouds are flying off behind him. When he speaks, he's able to dry up waters. As he moves, it says the mountains are quaking before him and hills are melting before him. The power of God is put on display in these words. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. You are just imagining the power of God as he moves. The earth is almost exploding, it sounds like. Hills melting, mountains shaking, rocks exploding. God in the storm and the clouds, the dust of his feet. It's a terrifying image. It conjures up a little bit of the terrifying event that happened in Exodus 19 and 20. That when God came down to Mount Sinai, how it smoked and shook and quaked and it was just booming and the people were terrified. And we read in the New Testament, even Moses himself was terrified when God came down in that moment. You are supposed to see the power of a terrifying God. But then notice the first words of verse 7. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge. God is Jealous, and God is avenging, and he is slow to anger, and will by no means clear the guilty. And he has the power to carry out that wrath and carry out that judgment. As you see pictures of being able to dry up the seas with the very words of his mouth, and as he moves through the earth, hills melting, mountains shaking, rocks exploding. And in the midst of all that, you're not supposed to be terrified because the very next words are that the Lord is good. The Lord does not do wrong toward anyone. While he will by no means clear the guilty, you have a picture that is so beautiful in verse 7 that he is a stronghold, a fortress In the day of trouble, he is good and you can go to him for your time of help. He can be trusted that this is his very character, that you can go to him and find him as your refuge and find him as your strength. And the text even makes it clear in verse seven. He knows those who take refuge in him. He knows who trusts him. He knows the people who are coming to him for help, who seek him in the middle of the storm, who are looking to him to be the shelter for their lives. 
He is a good God who is looking for his people to come to him. In essence, verse 7 is saying, those who truly know God have no need to fear. Because the Lord is good. And he knows those who belong to him. If you ever wonder if the Lord can be trusted... I hope that this chapter gives you a resounding yes. He absolutely can be trusted because he is good. He is your hope. He is your strength. He is your fortress and he is your rock in your time of trouble and in your time of distress. And he knows those who truly belong to him. And now listen to the final picture. Listen to verse eight. But with an overwhelming flood. He will make a complete end of the adversaries and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many They will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. What a powerful picture. Fourth image. God always wins. The Lord is victorious. He always ends. Verse 8, he says there, I will make a complete end of my enemies. Those who stand against me, they are not going to succeed. You have to love the question of verse 9. Why are you plotting against the Lord? Why would you do something like that? What good is that going to do you? As if you can win against God. Why would you plot against him? Why would you think that you could have any success against God? And so why resist him? Why stand against him? Why go against his commands? Because God will always win. He will make a complete end of his enemies. You have to love the picture in verse 12, the way he puts it. Though they are full strength and many. Here is God talking about Assyria. Though they are powerful and strong and mighty and full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. In fact, God loves it when they are many. How many times does he make the enemies look like they're stronger just to show that he can win? You have Gideon. Let's go to battle. You're already outnumbered. Yeah, but you still have too many people. We need to just go ahead and have only 300 men. (laughs) That's all. Or certainly my favorite, Jericho. Let's not even bother fighting. We'll just walk in circles and win. God loves winning against a people that think we're strong, we're mighty, we're at full strength. And God says, I can simply destroy them by my powerful word. In fact, listening to the words of verse 14 are so strong. No more shall your name be perpetuated. This is a stunning thing. For a long time, 
the critics of the scriptures argued that the Bible was invalid because it talked so much about this Nineveh city that we had never found. It was a fairy tale. It's all made up. It couldn't be real. It took until 1847 to find the ruins of Nineveh over 2,400 years later. No more shall your name be perpetuated. When it fell, it was over. And there's nothing there but sand and ruins. When God says in verse 14, I will make your grave, it's over for those people. And yet, why does he tell them this? Go back to the middle of verse 12. Though I have afflicted you, here's God talking to Judah. Though I've afflicted you, now why is God afflicting Judah? Because of their sins. And he's using Assyria as the means to afflict them because of their sinning. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you. His yoke, Assyria, off of you, Judah. I'm going to break his yoke off of you and will burst your bones apart. The Lord is coming to rescue and set his people free from Assyria. And that's exactly what happened. If we could have lived in that time and you would have looked around, you would have never thought that would be possible. Assyria had swallowed up the world at that time. All that seemed to be left in the days of Hezekiah is the city of Jerusalem. You might remember the accounts that are recorded for us in Isaiah and as well as in the king's account. Where you have the Assyrian commander mocking Judah and saying, don't think your gods can rescue you because we've wiped out all the other cities but you. You need to surrender now. Hezekiah prays to God. And Isaiah rushes with the answer. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to rescue you. And Nahum is preaching to the people and saying, you've been afflicted for your sins, but I'm going to set you free because the Lord is jealous and avenging, slow to anger, great in power, but he is good and he will by no means clear the guilty. All right, let's zero in then on these four pictures as we conclude then. I think noting these four characteristics is very important because sometimes they can be held in tension against each other. And I want us to see how they work together as a full palette, a full picture of who God is. Who is the Lord? He's jealous for his people. And that gives us a comfort because we know that means he must act. The Lord is jealous for his people, and that means he must act on behalf of his people. He will absolutely act. 
And he will do something. He will bring justice. He will do what is right. He is going to avenge. He is going to deal with wickedness. He is going to deal with evil. For all the evil that you may personally experience, any injustice that you might experience, or even if we're just looking around in our culture, in our nation, in our world, and we go, look at how bad things are. The Lord is jealous for his people. He must act. He will do something. But please note the other characteristic. He's slow to anger. Our issue is we go, something bad happened to me in the next five seconds, God, you've got to do something. Right now. He's slow to anger. Why? He's patiently waiting for repentance. This is the tension of the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum. Jonah wants Assyria dead now. And that's why he leaves. He can't wait for when it's God's time to bring justice. Because the Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is good. That means you can trust him to do good. While we wait... We know he's doing good and we can trust that good is going to be done. So we then run to him as our refuge in the day of trouble and hardship because we know that he will act. We know that he is jealous for his people. We know that he will avenge, but we know that he is slow to anger and will ultimately bring about that justice. So we go to him waiting for that time and then The Lord is victorious. We got to touch on that in the Bible class this morning. As we looked at Revelation 17. And we saw these pictures of how the Roman Empire is doing these persecuting acts toward the people of God. And there's a very subtle statement in there in verse 17 of Revelation 17. That the Lord is using that empire for his purposes. He will be victorious and it is only held together and continues on by his word. And so therefore he is going to act because he loves his people. Friends, if the clowns are the dust of his feet and he walks through the storm and through the whirlwind. What is too great for the Lord to do? If at his word seas dry up and at a twitch of his hand the mountains quake and the hills melt, then who is strong enough to resist him? Judgment will certainly come on sin and wickedness because God is good and because God loves his people. And when we wonder where justice is, And when judgment is coming upon all the evil that we see, please do not forget these characteristics of God. He's slow to anger, but he is good. And he is jealous for his people, and he will be victorious over evil and sin and wickedness. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are truly an amazing God.
And Lord, I pray that we could lean into these four characteristics that you revealed through your servant Nahum. Lord, help us to see that you are a jealous and avenging God because you love. You love us passionately. And may we be fully aware of that love that you jealously act for us. And Lord, I pray that that would cause us to cast away our idols and our sinful ways because we see how deeply you love us, how desperately you want a relationship with us. Lord, help us to see that. And Lord, we thank you that you are slow to anger because we are worthy of wrath. Lord, we thank you that you gave us time to repent and to turn back to you. And Lord, we pray more time would be given for not only the people that are close to us and the people that we know and we care about, but more time would be given for this culture, this society, this nation. And more time would be given for this world. For we certainly live in a time that is worthy of immediate judgment. And Lord, we are grateful that you are slow to anger and you desperately want all to be saved. And Lord, as we think about not only your wrath, but also your jealousy and your being slow to anger, Lord, It is amazing to know that you are good. That Lord, in all of your power, with all of your strength, and that what you can do by your very word to create and destroy, you use that power to save sinful people like us. Lord, thank you for grace. Thank you for your mercy. And we look forward to the day when we will stand victorious with you, when you have defeated all evil and made all things right. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to the Lord today with all of your heart, to turn to him faithfully, to see who God is, who is this God who is worthy of your love and service because he loves you that much. That he would not only give his son, but that he would fight for you, that he would care for you, and that you would then live for him because of what he's done for you. Can we help you come to the Lord tonight? Please come while we stand and while we sing.